1: make
0: the world a better place. What I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore!
2: I know Kung Fu. You either die a hero, or you live long well, enough to see yourself become a villain. I'm as
0: mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! This whole thing is insane! This whole
2: thing is insane! 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at a stake. What do all
0: men of power want? War power. This is now the United States of Land. This whole thing is insane Man is even Capable of nothing but destruction Everybody is stuck With the things that they're not proud of
1: War power. Welcome to the desert of the real War power.
0: There can be only one
1: are you a God-fearing man, Senator? It's such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy Heresies and welcome to the Desert of the Real. And welcome to the audio version of Aeon Byte Live, episode 32. Raw, uncensored, and unfiltered. Just like the truth you've been looking for across all your existences. Supercharged by stellar audience participation. In this sacrilege, we had the honor to have back Gary Lockman to discuss his new book, The return of Holy Russia. Is there a psyche to the Russian people? A particular form of mysticism and influencing mythology? And does all of this shape the modern Russia state? This journey included the pagan origins of the Russian people, Orthodox Church mysticism, the Mongol invasion, The Romanovs, the Silver Age, the Bolshevik materialism and nihilism, and much more. We had a few Zoom Archons mess with the audio at the beginning, but then things got all smooth operator-like. Once in a while it happens, but all in all, another astral home run of a show. As a bonus for AB Prime members and Patrons at Patreon, I'll provide our last interview with Gary, where he discusses his book, Dark Star Rising. Beyond understanding the chaos magic of Trump and how it parallels with that of Putin, we cover many of today's Russian magical thinkers like Alexander Dugin. So you'll see it's relevant to the return of Holy Russia. Thanks for those who continually support. Let's continue growing this red pill cafeteria. We need Gnosis more than ever, and we've only just begun reaching those who need to wake up. You won't find this high quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom, or guests and their unique insights, anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. But enough of my short drivel. Let us to our interview with the wonderful Gary Lockman. The Empire Never Ended. Welcome to the Desert of the Real. Welcome to another episode of Aeon Byte Live. And uh, as always, we'll wait till people start congregating in the chat room. But as always, it's an honor to have Gary Lachman on the show. And he is here to discuss his new book, Great Read, The Return of Holy Russia apocalyptic history mystical awakening and the struggle for the soul of the world Gary welcome as always good to have you on
2: well it's very good to be on again and thank you very much for inviting me oh pleasure
1: is all ours and with us too we've got the Moondog Vans Vans how you doing
2: I'm pretty good. I'm really rushing to hear all about Holy Russia. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The
1: puns. The puns have arrived. Yes.
2: Always have to have one.
1: All right. Awesome. So, wow, I'm still not getting mine live. I'm sure we are live. Let me make sure... Yes, there we are. Finally. Okay, good. Well, as always, first let's do uh, the typical house cleaning. I'll have to repeat it as more people congregate into the uh chat room. This is live, so if you have any questions for Gary, please write them down with lots of question marks or in caps that way we can Vance can pick them up and then we can Forward them to Gary. This is live, and as always, it will be on YouTube and the audio version in about 24 hours or so will be available on all channels, iTunes, iHeartRadio, everything. The audio version for uh, patrons and members, as always, there will be a bonus. Uh, for this show, the bonus will be Gary and uh, I's last interview where we discuss Dark Star Rising, which I feel the book and the interview are complementary to this work right here, as you will see. So, but without further ado, and then we'll worry about other house cleaning or uh, projects, Gary. Um, what happened? Why did you decide to write this book? I know uh, we kind of touched upon this in our last interview. But maybe tell the audience how this book came to being.
2: Well, you mentioned uh, Dark Star Rising, and um, it basically came out of that um, because there's a a good part of Dark Star Rising that is um, about Russia, um, uh, having to do with uh, Sarkov, who was um, Putin's uh, PR man, and ran this kind of uh, virtual reality Russia uh, for several years, and but also about a fellow named Alexander Dugin, um, who I'd say has a very strange trajectory, I mean he started out as a um, uh, 19, the 1980s as an anti-Soviet punk and uh, through a career of many, many different sorts of uh, quick change uh, costume uh, political ideologies. Um, he, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if he's still occupies his position, but he was lecturing to the sort of general staff of the Kremlin on geopolitics. So and a lot of his ideas, it struck me, were uh, informing some of Putin's um, decisions. And this, this, all that just came out of, um, you know, doing the reading to do the book about, uh, about Trump and uh, magic and politics, it seems to have come back in. And then at the end of that book, I thought, uh, yeah, there's a lot there left to do about Russia. And originally I originally was going to focus on an idea that I write about in Dark Star Rising, about this notion of Eurasia. And um, I, mean, I had an early idea for the book, was Eurasia Dawn, Eurasian Dawn, but then I thought that sounded like an exotic dancer. And so I, I decided not, not to go with that title. And, um, and, but then I also thought that I'd written quite a bit about Eurasia in Dark Star, and I didn't want to wind up repeating. So, I mean, it's in, it's in Holy Russia, it's there, it's a thread that runs through it. Um, and that 's the connection with it and I just and the other spur for for uh, for that I mean um, I mean that I felt like yeah there's a lot there you know there's, there's another book there but the sort of trigger to actually uh, try to put it together was um, um, I think it was 2015 2014 um, Putin gave out a reading list to his regional governors it was uh, one of the annual meetings of uh, uh, United Russia, uh, and um, on the reading list were um, some people that I, I had read. I mean, I, I, I don't read Russian, speak Russian, anything like that. I'm not a Russian expert, but i read an English translation, you know, quite a bit of sort of Russian philosophy. and, and things like that. So, uh, but he mentioned people like Nikolai Brudaliev, who I had read, and, and, and uh, uh, Slotiev. And uh, someone that I didn't know about, uh, uh, Ian Ilyan, mentioned him as well. Uh, But it just struck me as interesting that, oh, well, you know, uh, how many world leaders talk about these sort of obscure philosophers, you know, uh, or suggest to their governors to read them? And then I saw the response from people like David Brooks in the New York Times and some other Western critics, where, I mean, perhaps understandably, you know, they're not going to be very subtle about it, but they're basically. basically saying that these are these messianic uh, Russian exceptionalist uh, uh, philosophers at the end of the 19th early 20th century who had this vision of a kind of Russian, uh, you know, culture spreading out over the world in, in, in a certain way. And they, they saw it as very kind of regressive and, and that sort of thing. And yeah, there's an aspect to that, but it's not really what's at the heart of it. Now, I just thought it was a rather ignorant some kind of response. And so I thought, well, actually, you know, these guys are quite interesting. So is are interesting. He's informed, you know, sort of side of esoteric philosophy and that was it so from that it just led to and what's why is it holy russia what's called, it's like it's not you know you don't really hear holy france or you know i mean not, <laughs> not, not that you haven't heard things like that but it isn't it's there is a pe- peculiar identity to you know russia being holy and i just wanted to understand what that was and that, that was the real germ of the book
1: yeah it was a, it was an excellent journey i loved your book again uh As you always say, you are a scholar of the history of consciousness, and this was a a journey into the entire consciousness of uh, Russia. I mean, most people are aware of the Western consciousness based on the Greco Roman. We, of course, have the Persian consciousness, the Asian consciousness, but there seems to be a big, uh, really, ignorance about uh, what is the Russian consciousness, and you do uh, an excellent job. I love uh, your idea of. the history of meaning and this is important and it's something isn't as very alien to us in the West, but mm. pretty normal mm. to the Eurasians.
2: Mm. Well, this was something that, um, certainly sort in the second half of the book, um, again, it's a thread that runs through where I mean, the the whole, light, whole notion of what Russia's picking up from the West. This is a, a theme that's running throughout the book as well. And, uh, there's certain philosophies that they're adopting um, obviously, you know, Marx, but it's later on. But Hegel and Schelling. Schelling was someone who was very big uh, in Russia. Uh, he doesn't get as much press as, as Hegel did and all that. And Schelling's, particularly, uh, it's, it's a philosophy of sort of, of the Romantic movement, and it has more to do with meaning. It has more to do with that side of our being uh, rather than the analytical enlightenment, um, you know, uh, critical inquiry and, 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 you know, rationalism, that you know, we have the world that we have today. And, and so it's something that somehow in Russian philosophy starts at the latter end of, of the 19th century. It's, it's saturated with this kind of pursuit, the kind of what we would consider existentialism. It's kind of like a pre-existentialism because it's dominated by the ideas of, you know, what's the purpose of life and, and human life in particular. And this is something you can get some... Christianity as well. And you see this in, you know, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, but it's in Soloviev, Philosophy and Bridaevs. And it's something that's in many ways radically anthropomorphic, but in a kind of spiritual uh, kind of sense. And uh, this is something that is very different than the West. You know, the West doesn't, you know, just doesn't see that, that or sees that as a kind of muddled headedness or something like that. So there's a, a detached, uh, you know, uh, character to Western engagement with the world. And again, that's a polarity that's in the book. And Russia, at the end of the nineteenth century, was supposed to have embodied this union between these two sides, which you know we, we can see operating in many ways around us. And then that—that that, that was a silver. It didn't—it didn't have the opportunity to really happen because of the Bolshevik Revolution. But now, you know, a century later, as it were, um, you know, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that's all that is being reclaimed. And that's, uh, and just, that's something Putin has been doing, at least in, 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 you know, in what I've read about, it, that he's uh, you know, been incorporating ideas from this period called the Silver Age that was uh, you know, very, very, very different than what was going on in the West. It was very mystical and in, interested in, in the occult and things of that sort.
1: Yeah, Gary, we're having a little bit of, uh, are you hearing that too, Vance? Uh, Gary's mic is a little scratchy.
2: Yes, I am hearing uh, that. Okay. Can you switch right. mics easily? I can put on a mic.
1: Just it it sounds a good too. It's a, yeah, it kind of comes and goes. Yeah,
2: okay, when maybe, you first talk, well, yeah, it's smooth. Maybe I'm but then it, around too much. <laughs> that could be it. Okay, sorry folks. Just hold on for the Oh, no, that's okay. okay. It's it, it yeah. happens yeah. more. It's live. <laughs> it's live.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's not Mamorex, and I showed my age by saying that.
2: Well, well, I I know what you mean. So <laughs>
1: All right, well hope it should be better and okay, we'll how's that?
2: How's that? Hello? Yeah, we can okay. hear you.
1: Yeah. We can hear okay.
2: Yeah. Okay. All right, awesome.
1: Well, hopefully this will fix it and it's not uh, a lag internet. If, if things get uh, worse, the one thing, the, the last trick we do is you just turn off your video and we go audio only, which is just okay. fine because that way it takes less bandwidth. But uh, we'll play it by year. So, to my okay. next question, and everything well said, fascinating, so I guess the question which is important to your book, and again you again, you keep revisiting this as as you, as we get an idea of what the the Russian psyche is and the Russian mythology mm. and so forth, but uh, you talk about uh, this very important concept: who is the Russian man, and mm. I love how you talk about uh, i'm trying to think of my notes was it uh spengler wilson who talks about how the western man looks up at the cathedrals and so but the mm. the russian man is always looking out at the steps mm. and that's a yeah, huge that's, distinction
2: yeah that that's that's spengler in the uh the decline of the west and he says the like the western ego the western eye like it looks up up into the sky you know sort of in the, the soaring gothic towers um or uh, an emblem of that, but uh, the Russian soul looks out. It's this kind of uh, horizon-oriented sight and uh, across the vast plains, you know, the endless steppes and that kind of thing. And um, he talks about it having, um, uh, what does he call it? It's the Magian, I think, is what he, he says is the Russian, if I remember exactly, or the Magian. This is, and it has it's this kind of the world dome. It's this notion of a kind of world dome as the, the Western is more you know, infinity. Endlessness, And so you have, like, the great, you know, um, Hagia Sophia in in, um, Constantinople, and it's now, it's still there in Istanbul, but there's this wonderful sense of this dome. And this is something that when uh, Prince Olga goes from Kiev uh, to Constantinople, um, she's already converted to Christianity, but she wants to go there. It's an envoy. It's political reasons as well, but she's going for her religious uh, pursuits too. And, uh, she's completely, um, overwhelmed by the beauty, um, precisely in that dome, that kind of world dome with all the glittering lamps and, and the icons and things of that sort. So that, yeah, that's one of the distinctions too. I mean, a Russian man is a term that I, I, I get from Hermann Hesse. Um, I mean, others at the time were talking about it too. Steiner has a couple of lectures with Steiner, and I mentioned him too in this part of the book, but it's this, um, idea he comes up with or this way of describing um, that this character based on um, reading Dostoevsky. And it's mostly the brothers Karamazov and um, the idiot. But it's this notion of Russian man is this huge, capacious soul that can embrace uh, opposites and polarities and you know antinomium to the hilt. And so you get this notion of like, Rasputin, the holy devil, you know, I mean, a, a, a more, uh, you know, maybe, you know, the Hell's Angels motorcycle gang is a kind of expression of this antinomian sense as well. I mean, and it runs through, you know, um, you know much of the occult and um, kind of the radical transgressive you know, counter, counter world. Uh, but this is something that the Russian man is able to embrace. And he's, he's sinner and saint. He's poet and drunkard. He's, you know, judge and, and, and uh, criminal. And um you know, and this he has this wonderful line about this, this kind of terrible, um, indiscriminating sanctity, or something like that, where everything is holy. You know, even the most you know, vile kinds of, of you know, behavior, which you transcend that and all that. And this, and Hesse, as Spengler was saying at the same time, he you know, he felt like Europe was in decline, was at its end. I mean, it was you know, it wasn't an uncommon idea. You have Max Norden's book Degeneration. Published in the 1890s. That's kind of saying the same thing from a more clinical kind of point of view. But uh, Spengler doesn't see any chance of renewal. Hester thinks there can be renewal if we're able to embrace this this character. Um, and this is part of the uh, this whole polarity and, and the bringing together that's supposed to happen between kind of the Western logical European mind and, and the Russian, which is sort of half Asiatic and it's this, you know. Chaotic blend of potential and all this kind of thing. And, and the and again, this is part of this third way that was somehow supposed to emerge, that was everyone was kind of expecting. And then you know the Bolsheviks came and scotched that.
1: And also important you quote early on, you called uh Rudolf Steiner and his views of the, of Russia. How did he see the Russians or the Russian man? I mean, can we say I mean, can we say Blavatsky maybe embodies the Russian man? I mean, even in our interview on Blavatsky, (laughs) you talk about you had this mystic who was smoking and eating Hmm. butter. Basically, it was just this (laughs) contradiction of characters, just profane and holy at the same time. I mean,
2: yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I I say in the book that when, when Steiner is talking about Russian man, he points to a Russian woman. Um, in fact, as an example. And it is Madame Blavatsky, who, who he calls a very cheeky creature. You know, that he, you know he's, 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 he's tactfulness incarnate. So, uh, I mean, Steiner is, you know, very gentle and all this kind of thing. But uh, yeah, he points to her as being this madcap and this character who um, had, you know, tremendous insight and charisma and power, but was explosive and uncontrollable. And this is something that Berdayo says about the Russians. I mean, a book that I got a lot from is this wonderful book by Berdayo called The Russian Idea. And this was kind of his philosophical, spiritual history of Russia. And, you know, Bajaya was an interesting character himself. He, he contained these contradictions. I mean, he was a Marxist, but also a Christian, an existentialist, and he was a, a kind of spiritual anarchist. Um, and, I mean, he was very well read in, in the sort of the 30s and 40s, and, and, and not so much anymore. But um, he, he said that the Russia, Russia had this primal, primeval kind of eruptive force, but it didn't have any kind of sense of boundaries or order or any kind of structure, and it, it lacked that. And uh, it was just this kind of turbulent kind of you know, power. Um, and uh, you can see some of them are like Blavatsky. I was going to say, Gurjev, even though we know Gurdjieff wasn't Russian ethnically, but he came to prominence in, in Russia and he was no he I think the judge of himself was you know, he was another, again he was he was different than Blavatsky, but they were similar in the sense that he did have this disruptive kind of character at the time and 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 some of his and he too like Blavatsky snared Colonel Alcott, uh to kind of be her front man uh, and he was a very sober you know uh, uh, earnest uh, good speaker and all that an organizer um and Khrushchev Kott-Uspensky, who is a very well Russian. And, and Uspensky is more sophisticated than, than Olcott, but it, it kind of serves a similar kind of purpose in that sense. So that's that's one of the things, too. So there's this kind of... It, it's, it's a, I mean, it, I, I'm sure to some Russians they're probably thinking all these kind of, you know, cliches, but, you know, this, this is, it just seems to be the case. But this kind of... At the same time, you have this disruptive kind of power, and then there's also kind of somnolence, this kind of... You know, the, 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 Sort of ob- Oblomov character who sits by the stove all day, or takes a chapter to get him out of bed, and 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 uh, and like I kind of say well, you can sort of see this in, in the history as well, where you have these this kind of you know primal kind of power, but it, it, it is it is kind of lethargic, and then you have the Ivan the Terrible, or these these kind of you know, catastrophic figures who who just just you know just give it a real nasty kick. And um, But again, one of the things I loved about doing the book is that I, I, I learned some of the history of Russia. I, mean, I didn't really know anything outside of, just around the Revolution, I guess, or the period, the Silver Age, which I was familiar with. So I wrote about that you know, book about Spensky and so on. Because he came out of that, that little year before he met Gershav. But then just to understand this whole history, um, and, um, and then to read back up to people that I did know, like, Dostoevsky, then I can understand in a sort of deeper way some of the motifs and themes that are going on in Dostoevsky's um, you know, books, and, uh, especially that line about beauty will save the world that takes us back to you know, the icons and all of that kind of experiences. This is something that there's, there's this whole yearning for this transformation, this transformative apocalypse in some way that's going to happen. Um, and that seems to be something that you know, is very much part of th- that character. And again, Dio talks about, about that a lot.
1: Wonderful. Well said. Yeah, Gary, do you want to, uh, are you still hearing a little stick uh, there, Vance? Yeah, do you want to turn off your video and see if that helps?
2: We'll oh, okay, I'm sorry about all this.
1: Oh, that's okay. It happens. It's the internet. Okay, let me
2: see. Where? How do I get to there? Let me see.
1: Let see. At the bottom, if you hover, you'll see your stop video. Oh, I see. Stop
2: video. Okay. Yeah, all right.
1: Try that and let's see I'm if that helps. I'm sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. We'll just do audio only.
2: Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm clicking on stop video, but it isn't stopping yet. Oh, there you
1: go. All right. Hopefully that will help. But okay, uh, well. yeah. Wonderful. And um uh, I think you yeah, you talked about Olga and uh it seems what I'm getting in your book is that seems to be really the the birth of Russia and modernity is when you had Princess Olga, who was uh this uh basically pagan princess. Who goes down to uh, Constantinople and sees the wonders of this very exotic civilization, and as this pagan woman meets the, the really uh, sublime view of the Greco-Roman world that it's now Christianized, and it's I would say it's that meeting where you, you could say that Russia was created, at least the, the spirit of Russia was created. Wouldn't you agree with that, Gary?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I would say this is sort of the turning point. In um, I mean, it becomes official with her grandson, I believe, Vladimir. Vladimir yeah. first, but she's the one who pushes for it. I mean, they—they you know—they had sent out missionaries before, um, but this was something where it's um, yeah, it was brought back, and she wanted to bring the beauty that she saw in Constantinople back to Kiev, and um, a lot of Kiev, a lot of the. Um, Construction that went on after that was based on trying to copy uh, parts of Byzantium, basically. And um, yeah, this whole notion that she was just um, um, overwhelmed by the experience and all that. And then later, um, when sort of Vladimir was checking out, uh, okay, deciding, you know, uh, where to go, because there were, there were you know uh, there was competition um it was a a western church and there was um islam as well and the story is that he sent out some emissaries to go and check each of these out um and they said well uh no you know western christianity is okay it just seems a little dull and islam we can't drink so we can't do that and uh but you know nothing surpassed the beauty that we saw in constantinople we didn't know where, where we were we believed we were on heaven on earth i'm paraphrasing it's it, it was this expressions of that again it was this notion and you have to remember i mean okay this is a thousand years ago but still they're they're being sent out from kiev itself which wasn't you know it was it wasn't a mud hut you know it was uh, so and these are kings these are you know people living the highest standard of living you could at the time. And they're impressed. They're impressed by, you know, this other place. And then that that was this thing. And again, the icons, the icons were seen as these transformative, um, I mean, they weren't just sort of, they were a way to communicate and actually show rather than convince through any kind of, you know, t- talk or argument. So this is what it's going to be like. And and they would show you this this fantastic, you know, um, painting that glittered in these, these you know, colors that um, just seemed transfigured to them. And so this was another, you know, thing that, that, that sold the idea.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, and uh, I think you, well, as you just uh, mentioned, Dostoevsky talking about how beauty will save the world, it almost seems like that Neoplatonist idea with beauty met with this sort of, uh, I don't want to say more savage or pagan culture and this this infuses really i think the, the russian spirit in it and then it would definitely go on and as your book talks very well gary you talk about really the the people that influenced russia and it wasn't just uh, the slavics or the rus like olga but it was uh, earlier vikings who were oh. pretty savage and all that i was uh, i don't know you mentioned this ritual called the blood eagle and I don't know if you've seen the movie Midsommar?
2: Midsommar? I haven't seen it yet, no.
1: Okay, well, it does show the ritual right there, with the very right. gruesome okay. ritual where they right. open the yeah. guy's ribs and they put yes. out his lungs and he's like, yes. oh. But, yes. uh, well,
2: this, yeah, apparently this is what um, the early uh, Vikings that were invited, Rurik, um, I mean, the story is you have the, the, so the indig- I guess, you know, indigenous Slavs are there and they've made these settlements, but um, they, they can't keep it together. They're not very good at order. You know, it's, everything is kind of messy and all this sort of thing, and they need some kind of rigor and order to come. And so they invite these Vikings, say, hey, once you come here, you can rule over us. We'll feed you. We'll give you this treat you really well. So instead of come coming and raiding us all the time, you can actually be here. We'll take care of you. And you can protect us from these other people <laughs> coming and raiding all the time. And we're like, okay, sounds good. You know, see, so I mean, he takes it and then this is supposed to be the beginning. And and this is, a, you know, depending on your point of view, this is actually a part of the tradition of what it means to be Russian, or it's this kind of propaganda that is used by people like Putin or whatever, uh, the, you know, the, the, the more progressive, um, sort of strain in, in Russia at the time and say, you know, yeah, no, this whole idea that the Russians are inherently chaotic and can't keep it together and they need some outside, um, you know, uh, authority to come in uh, and, authority, and uh, basically an, an authoritarian figure to come in and give them some order uh, is a myth that is used to, you know, Propagate that that order, but this seems to be the case. You know, I mean, it's debated whether that really happened. How much is myth and all that, but that's that's sort of the story. And uh, then from there, uh, there's the move uh, down south. You know, uh, down towards the Black Sea and and Kiev and all that, and the encounter with um, you know uh, Constantinople and and uh, that world. You know, which they, they, you know, the first the first time they meet, it's as a raiding a raiding party. You know, they're they're attacking Constantinople and all that, and then uh, they sort of win that one. There's another time when Constantinople, they 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 prepare for them and they have Greek fire, and they're able to hold them off with you know, the Greek fire was this weird um, uh, flammable kind of incendiary um, weapon that they they flung onto the ships and all that and uh, but then gradually, again, they made a deal, and they said, okay, well, look, rather than, you know, why don't we all work together, and Vladimir says, okay, but I want to marry into the family. You know, he wants to marry into the Roman sort of family and all that. This is something that wasn't done, but they finally, you know, kind of agree, and uh, it takes them a while. Uh, they agree in principle, but it takes them a while before they send, you know, uh, uh, his uh, wife and... Um, He, meanwhile, he has like, I don't know how many thousands of his warriors are actually in Byzantium, sort of like, well, you know, if you don't send her now, you know, I'll I'll release the Kraken. I'll I'll release, I'll I'll release the, you know, and okay, and they finally agree, and then, um, yeah, um, he uh, is baptized, and then he goes and brings it back to the rest of the country, and then goes throughout, you know, um, all the cities and and enforcing the the new, the new gods.
1: Yeah. And uh, Vance, any questions from the audience for Gary?
2: I had one from Ian, which uh, dealt with uh, the influence of Slavic pagan culture um, and whether it still influences the Russian spirituality. I think you touched on that to uh, to a large degree, but what else do you have to say about that, Gary? Well, I mean, it's, it's something that's um, like many things um, that, were sort of, uh, you know, obscured or you know, uh, put out of the way during the Bolshevik time. It's it's made a comeback. I mean, um, I know there are several different variants of a kind of native pagan um, religion emerging in, in, in Russia now. Uh, uh, there's uh, uh, anastasia Anastasianism is was one kind of uh, variant of that, and then uh, there's some just basic you know, ones that are calling native pagan and so and the kind of Slavic. I mean, I talk about that in the end of the book. It's more like, okay, here, here's some signs that Holy Russia uh, has come back. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, as far as I can tell, it's, it's, it's very alive and it's actually spreading, you know, in the sense that other, other countries and I guess the near abroad, you know, or uh, into Eastern Europe are picking up on it as well. It's supposed to be very but popular in the state, States, I was going to say. This, apparently this... Uh, um, Anastasianism is supposed to be very, very popular in the States. Oh, really? So, wow. You know, that's that, that's what I've heard, so I, I don't know. And then all through the Soviet era, you know, since the Bolshevik Revolution and so forth, they, they uh, allegedly suppressed religion because it wasn't part of Marxism. But the, what do you know about, you know, what was really going on during all that time? Uh, they always still had churches and services and so forth, didn't they? Um, well, I assume. I don't get into that so much in the book. It's more about actually it was kind of pushed out of the way. Um, so uh, I, I assume it had some kind of uh, hidden underground life. But I don't talk about that per se in the book so much. Okay.
1: Yeah, we, well, we want to get it into uh, the, uh, you might say, metaphysics of the Bolsheviks. because It's important to, to see about that. But going back to the history of Russia... Then, uh, as you say, you had Kiev becoming Christian. That was sort of the, the Russian capital. But then things moved to Moscow, and that happened uh, with what? Oh, that happened with the Mongol invasion. Isn't that what basically, again, that huge shift in the history of the Russians? Well,
2: that, seemed, that happened after, after the Mongols. Um, no, was it was after? The, the next I empire. thought they raved yeah.
1: Kiev, according in your book.
2: No, the Mongols came, and and that was it. That was that. That's kind of. I mean, I sort of refer to it kind of um, in, in a kind of way. It's sort of. It's that Kia period is kind of the the King Arthur no. and and the Round Table, you know, equivalent in a certain sense. Because there is there is this kind of sense that that too is a kind of mythic time that's looked back to as this kind of you know golden age of, of knights and chivalry. And, and heroes and that sort of thing, and then you know, then it, it's yeah, it's uh, swept up by the Mongols. But then a- after, when the Mongols are, are finally, they're not so much driven out as that they kind of drive themselves out because there's sort of factors working within the, the Great Horde, the Golden Horde, that kind of just just eventually, basically, the the Khan who was you know still demanding tribute, he gets offed by another Khan, and then they just kind of lose interest, and then the whole you know the the Horde breaks up itself. Uh, and then at that point, Moscow starts to, I mean, it, it already has been, and, but uh, it, it, it emerges out of, out of that, you know, the, the, when the, gold, the yoke is finally broken, it emerges as, as the new power. And then that's the whole idea of the third Rome. It, 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 it's, you know, it's picking up um, after the final, you know, long, long awaited and long expected collapse of Constantinople to the Turks in 1453. Then it takes on. The mantle of, of of the Third Rome, and I guess that too is what feeds into this notion, this this sort of messianic history, uh, the sense of historicism in, in the Russian uh, character, the Russian journey, if you want to call it. That uh, yes, there's this, and again, it's a kind of straight line, you know, sense of history. You know, um, there's there's a, a goal, there's some kind of you know climax, and it's moving on towards that.
1: Yeah, as you write, uh, there was uh, before the pagan time when history sort of cyclical. But uh, once Christianity is infused into the the Russian mind, then it's like you said: there's there's a beginning, and then there's a glorious end. We hope. Well, the,
2: I, the, the parallel I make is if, uh, and then you get to the we talked about um, Spengler before how he sees, um, you know, the Russians looking out you know, across the vast plain. And then you get the notion of the pilgrimage. this kind of endless journey, you know, walking, you know, um, uh, endlessly. I mean, Rasputin, you know, walked to Mount Athos and then he took in the Holy Land as a side trip or something. I mean, this is just, I, you know, I, I read this, I read, is this, did he really do that? And I look in another book and I look in another book and I think, my God, like 900
1: is, miles or so.
2: Oh, it's just enormous, you know, and, and then, um, and, you know, and there's others who are doing these. Uh, and again, so that sense of vast endless plains and distance, but, but it is kind of like it's a pilgrimage's journey, you know, to something, you know, to some holy spot and so on. So um, it, it just seems to me there's a parallel between the kind of spatial, you know, expression of that, the actual pilgrimage and then this, this temporal historical one Roots, you know, well, there's the whole cliche, life is a pilgrimage itself, but then this notion that his, history was aiming towards, heading towards something. It, it it was heading towards some kind of um you know climax and that's something that's still i mean in some degree at least in the form of say like uh, dugan who he he turns up a lot of rhetoric with that kind of uh, uh those kinds of ideas um and um yeah so it seems to something that's still there you know
1: yeah and um Talking about, uh, you might say the one of the climaxes of the Russian man, and you mm. put a lot of work into or give a lot of uh, attention is that of Ivan the Terrible. Again, <laughs> this uh, sort of ruler who was uh, again this weird duality. He was believed in the arts and very religious, wanted to become a monk. But on the other side, he was uh, he had a huge sex drive, and he was a murderer, and he was mm. it was just he represents the, not only the Russian man, but as uh, so you come up, you as you bring up Colin Wilson's concept of the right man.
2: Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I was going to say, he's, he's an example of um, this uh, character or personality that Colin Wilson calls the right man. And he got the idea from the science fiction writer A.E. Van Vogt, um, who wrote about a novel called The Violent Man. And it's, it's, a, char- it's, it's, it's a personality... Go to a uh, profile of someone who can never admit to being wrong, and um, uh, will go to great lengths to uh, insist and and um, you know secure that he is right, and uh, will become violent when confronted with resistance, and so on and so on. And he says, you know, I mean, Ivan Terrible is one of these characters uh, that somehow, in the world history, seem to rise up into these positions of power in which they can exercise uh, uh, that, you know, that character, uh, to great length. I mean, uh, and yes, and he, and he was, and he was, um, I say a complex character. He pointed out that he was interested in the arts and learning. Uh, he promoted education and things of that sort, but he apparently took great delight in seeing, um, uh, those whom he thought were plotting against him tortured. And I guess, you know, the, you know, one of the and you say truly uh, horrific things. Uh, it was when he walled in the city of Novgorod. with some apparent slight, um, and um, massacred something like forty thousand people. And uh, I mean, I say in the book, you know, it, uh, I mean, the terrible, terrible is supposed to be like a mistranslation of the dreaded. But I mean, yeah, he's, he's the dreadful Ivan. But he's still that's still pretty terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to make a horrible joke out of that. But uh, but but um, and um, but around that time, he was also you know he had astrologers around him and and a variety of other you know, uh, soothsayers and things of that sort. And there was this. It was a time when it was more or less a theocracy, um, the, the country because it seemed to be. There was a, this strange kind of relationship between the monasteries and the actual and the secular life, and that they kind of cross paths at different sorts of times, where uh, the actual everyday life is becoming more and more like a, a, a like that of a, a, a monastic life. You know, the the, uh, the seriousness and and, and uh, kind of uh, enforcement of you know following religious you know rules and all that. Was quite remarkable, and then actually in the monasteries themselves, they were all quite, quite getting drunk and having sex and all that. I mean, apparently, I mean <laughs> later on, rescue Well, but the story is Rasputin, and when he went to Mount Athos, he was revolted at what the monks were getting up to, and, and all that sort of thing. So I don't know, but um, yes, yeah, strange. But I mean, you talk about that. You talk about the monasteries. This is the whole idea where Russia seems to have spread out, it was this kind of. Religious kind of colonization, because what happens? You know, the monks were very serious. Wanted to get away from the towns, and they went out into the wilderness. It wasn't the desert; it was the forests and all that. And they would they make a little place for themselves, one or two of them. Then others were attracted, and other people came. Then it turned into another town, and then they had to leave, and they had they kept going, and this is the way it kind of spread out there. So it was, um, and uh, it was like John. Uh, uh, I, I, Billington—I I, can't—I'm using his name right now—the uh, American historian who, who wrote uh, about them. But uh, he, he talks about the—you know—the the sort of monastic settlers who had an icon, an icon in one hand and axe—an axe in the other. Um, so they were like—you know—clearing the forests and setting them up, and then you know, creating the sort of—you uh, know—the monastery there, as it were, and then the town would grow up.
1: Yeah, but uh, I think the story of Ivan the Great uh, brings about the question which I've wondered, many have wondered, is the idea of, uh, and you bring it up, is why do Russians love a tyrant? It seems to be the trope. I mean, in the case of Ivan the Terrible, he decides he's going to pull a Greta Garbo and go to a man- monastery. He's taking his toys and he's not going to be the czar, even though he's already a tyrant, and they beg him to come back and then give him mm-hmm. even more power. I mean...
2: Well, as I said, this is something that, um, depending on the authorities you're reading, it seems to be something that's part of the, you know, the Russian character. Uh, Bradia blames a lot of that on on the uh, the Mongols when they were under the Tartar yoke, and this kind of, um, you know, it's kind of a total obeisance to the. Uh, to the Khan and that 's where, where you have them you know bowing their heads on the on the floor and all this kind of thing and, and um, you know a real kind of obvious sort of you know compliance and and submission and uh, well and again again with Ivan the terrible and it, that was the other thing too is that he he wanted to show that he was just uh, he was on par with the great rulers of Europe you know um, this is a story of the Holy Roman Emperor at the time wanted to kind of calm him down by giving, giving him a kind of title. And he said, I, I have no need of you, you know, of your titles. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm well, they say he, they, they claim this descent from, from Rome. Um, there's all these different stories where there's a descent, you know, an actual kind of descent from Rome. There's Vladimir's marriage into the sort of Roman blood, but then there's earlier kind of early stories that, that uh, anchor, um, you know, some, some less tenuous than others, but they kind of anchor, you know, the, the Russian... Uh, world in, 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 in Roman, uh, sort of Roman brute. So he um, he had to show that he was as, um, you know, powerful and dominant as the others were. Um, and, I mean, the great switch, and that is with Peter the Great, you know, later on. Well, it's, it's only apt that the great switch should be with Peter the Great. But, uh, you know, when he you know, it makes this attempt to be, you know, become westernized and um, the ruler is no longer this sort of figure of uh, uh, God's regent on earth. I mean, that was, you know, Ivan was, you know, if you, if you, you know, you disagree with him, you disagree with God, you know, and, and, uh, you know, the others are as well. And um, this changes with Peter because he, 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 he is Westernized. He he doesn't see it like that at all. I mean, he, you know, he has the same authority, you know, he wants to claim the same authority, but it's got nothing to do with any kind of uh, religious um, representation. And, um, you know, he, he wants to lose all that pomp and everything like that. So it's a, that's the switch. And this is the other kind of polarity that going on um, in the book uh, is um, are we Western or aren't we? You know, and it kind of, yes, we are, no, we're not uh, kind of thing that, uh, you know, most recently, I guess, um, happened in the 90s.
1: Yeah, and for the audience, definitely check out uh – the, his chapter on Ivan the Great is something else—from his death to all his shenanigans. Uh, the creator, the fir- the creator of the first secret police in mm. history. I mean, what a character! He's like King Joffrey in Game of Thrones, or something like that. I wonder where to. Uh, yeah, complex character. Yeah, and as you say later on in the Enlightenment period with Peter the Great, then things change in Russia. Doesn't it become more secular? I think you you write about Catherine Catherine the Great. She was a friend with Voltaire. She was uh, the Russians were allowing Freemasons. So then Russia mm. in that time seems to go reject the whole God thing and becomes what more secular.
2: Well, I mean, as I said, Peter wanted to Westernize it. That's uh... St. Petersburg was built. It's supposed to be the window on the west, um, and it's um, it's not a natural, organic kind of um, city, as you could say Moscow was, or you know, Kiev. It was, it was planned. You know, it's it's like you know New York in the sense that it's all it's a grid, and it's planned on places like Amsterdam, and he wanted a seaport. Um, Russia was landlocked. Uh, 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 and and the only other ports are up in the north and it was frozen most of the time. And so um, there he could get, you know, it was, uh, you know, around Finland and and, and into the sea and all that. And so this is what he, so he built it there and it's a swamp. And so he just created this um, uh, city. So it was like one of the most, and one of the stories is that you couldn't build any, you couldn't build with stone anywhere else in Russia at the time when he was building St. Petersburg or so any stone that could be used for any kind of, you know, building would be sent, sent there to be used for all the buildings that, you know, um, he wanted. And like, say, Alexander, who never really saw Alexandria, um, uh, or actually Constantine didn't get a very, you know, I guess he saw some of novel. But, uh St. Peter didn't see as that much of St. Petersburg, you know, it, 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 uh, it was the ones who came after Anne, Catherine the Great, and this was the influence of the French too at that time, so, you know, uh, there was all the French manners at the court, and um, yes, yeah, Freemasonry was one of the things that was happening, uh, there's all this bunch of talk, you know, discussion whether Peter himself was ever Initiated into uh, Freemasonry or not, but um, you know this you know he could very well have been when he was in England uh, there's a story um, on this uh, sort of journey he took uh, to England uh, and he was in disguise, but it was hard not to notice him because he was something like six foot six or something and you he know, was like you know, not too many people were that tall <laughs> that even, no matter what he was dressed up as a worker or something, he would stand out. And apparently, you know, this is a story that he was um, initiated there. And again, he too, you know, apparently had a library and close friends that were very interested in all these occult, um, you know, stuff that was happening at the time. You know, there's no reason why they wouldn't have been. You know, it was something that was just um, in the air. You know, it was uh, intelligent people that were interested in, in things who were reading these sorts of stuff, and so he would he would collect all that. There's supposed to be some library that he had that was sealed up somewhere that. I don't know. It's all sort of rumors that KGB found it at one point or something like that, but I, I don't know. Maybe Vance might. I don't know. <laughs> Not me.
0: Right behind you, Vance. No, right
2: tie, no ties to the ever. KGB. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there it is. That's the secret library. Oops, yeah, you're <laughs> let it slip it. out of my secret okay. file. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and yes, well, uh, for the audience, we are trying to just go through Gary's book, through history, but it's so rich. But you start to Oh, get yeah, so used. much.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, we're trying just to show in an interview the sort of the evolution of the Russian psyche, and it's fascinating. So now we've got the Enlightenment, and then in the 19th century, what starts to happen? I think that's when Russia really becomes fascinating, especially with philosophy and metaphysics.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think the 19th century is sort of the Russian century in, in, mm-hmm. in one sense. And uh, I mean, we mentioned Freemasonry briefly. I mean, um, initially Catherine Gray was um, open to it. But then with the Illuminati scare, uh, mm, right. she she closed down on it and, and clamped down. And, um, I mean, there's, you know, uh, some good sections in the book about that was actually in the late eighteenth, early nineteenth century, Freemasonry and uh, Martinism as well, like the uh, Louis Claude de saint a unknown philosopher, uh his ideas and uh Karl von Eckharthausen and and Franz von Bader and all, all these, these people's ideas were um informing um either people in the court or even like Alexander the first who was, um, had, had contact with lots of these sorts of ideas and all that. But Catherine, yeah, she, she kind of, she, she closed down on it once the Illuminati scare had happened. And, uh, there was one really interesting. I and mean, the other thing too, there's all these interesting characters that you don't you never hear about. I mean, you hear you know, you know, there's what, there's ones you do know, but then, uh, this, uh, 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 Nikolai Novikov who was the this Freemason at the time. I mean, he was a remarkable character and, uh, who uh, sort of took the progressive, you know, um, egalitarian um, brotherhood of man sort of aspect of um, uh, Freemasonry, which in an early part in her reign, her career, Catherine, too. She had drawn up these proposals, actually, to change things. But the problem was and remained until mid-19th century were, were the serfs. What are we going to do about the serfs? And it was like, you know, their plight was absolutely horrific. And that's what you get. You, you do, that's the thing that you say what happened in the 19th century was that it became just inescapable. What, what do we do? Because you have this vast mass of people that are living in this substandard kind of way that are owned by the landowners. But uh, the people in power know that if they freed them... Um, the landowners would revolt and all of that. And, you know, the economy would break down all the reasons you'd get now for whatever, you're going to say, why we have to have low paid people. So the same thing, you have them there. And then eventually it just came to where, you know, they, they did, uh, yeah, they were freed and it, it didn't change that much, but it fed into, you know, the resentment and animus that would eventually explode in the early uh, 20th century. But yeah. And, and you just get, you get, what happens is this remarkable flowering, um, uh, in, in um, Russia, you know. Uh, 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 it, it's kind of like a Renaissance happens. And I mean, the, the Silver Age is a period at the end of the 19th century where it's everything is kind of almost overripe. You know, there's a kind of decadent character to it. It's almost too rich. But say the mid, but um, you have, you know, the great you know, Tolstoy's writing and, and uh, you know, so, so many other. And they're all fueled by this moral sense and it's in a way the kind of um what we want to what, what do you want to call it the sense of value and meaning uh the existential questions that the west were had left behind and had jettisoned religion mostly and was careening more and more towards the materialism which we, you know we're the you know we're 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 the heirs of that and we live in that world now uh it it you know it's all the kinds of questions that potostoyevsky was you know becoming hysterical about, <clears throat> from some, you know, from perspective as, as kind of just, you know, just very over- overwrought sorts of things. But this is what the, the Russian soul was becoming uh, aware of, you know, um, uh, this whole kind of plight of, you know, and you have great like Tolstoy, you know, where he, and Gogol before him, I mean, uh, dead souls is, is just, uh, I mean, th- th- there's another, as I said, I've talked before about this kind of somnolent, uh, lethargic, Side to the Russian, you know, character. You have something like that in all of these depictions of these, you know, uh, Russian towns uh, out in the out in the sticks, uh, uh, where nothing happens until. Uh, you know, page three hundred, where the the music decides to <laughs> blow his brains out or something. It's like P.G. Boathouse makes a joke about that in one of his stories. And uh, I mean, again, that's, that's that's a cliche. So you have, and you know, Gogol's writing about that, and and this whole like, you know, we have to change things. What can we do to change things? It becomes incredible pressure. And I said Gogol had, you know, at the end of his career, he he rejected all of his art and you know went on this pilgrimage and basically, you know. Uh, dying of malnutrition or something like that and then Tolstoy rejects all of his work at the end and he goes on this last mad pilgrimage you know from his home and they find him at the train station and 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 all that so there's this powerful you know uh, obsession with these with these questions of meaning and purpose that the west was just you know completely ignoring and all that there's a very different kind of art. We have like, you know, Flaubert and Tolstoy. I mean, there's a kind of, there's a kind of gospel of art in Flaubert, but it's this kind of precision. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the, the precision of the art. And Tolstoy is writing these essays like, what is art, you know? You know what, what, what's the use of art, basically? If, yeah. if not to save yeah. us. You know, the Russians want to be saved by their art. Again, its beauty will save the world. Yeah. They don't want to be entertained. They don't want to be entertained by it. They want, be, they want to be saved by it. It has this transformative power, or it's just, you know, it's just kind of glitter.
1: And there you have it my beloved truth seekers The first part of our interview with Gary Lachman We continue the intensity in our second part And get ready to understand the Bolshevik metaphysics If you want to call it that And much more on the Russian psyche as mentioned in the intro, and as a bonus for AB Prime members and patrons at Patreon, I'll provide our last interview with Gary, where he discusses his book, Dark Star Rising. Beyond understanding the chaos magic of Trump and how it parallels with that of Putin, we cover many of today's Russian magical thinkers like Alexander Dugan so you shall see it's relevant to the return of Holy Russia and the interview in general. Including the audio version, this is a cool listen if you leverage the private RSS feed from AB Prime or Patreon that works with the podcast provider of your choice. So please become a member of Patreon and support this Red Pill Cafeteria. Go to The God Above God Dead Camp For means to assist And get the infernal rewards Or just contact me I can't do it without you And if you've got Holes in your pockets Due to the monkey shines of Archons Just message me And I'll give you any show On the house I know these are weird times, and the alternative spirituality and philosophy of the Gnostics is more important than ever. Might be the only way to counteract the Baldi has place on the collective consciousness of humanity in 2020. Don't feel bad, and I give away freeful episodes all the time. Thanks for being here, thanks for being yourself your true self here in the desert of the real hello and goodbye as always